and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Olga Olaker, speaking to you from Brussels. And I'm your other host, Alyssa Jobson, also in Brussels. For our first, if somewhat belated, episode of 2024, we are talking about how the European Union is responding to the crisis in the Red Sea, its proposed naval mission, and what Europe can do, what Europe might do, uh, what Europe might fail to do, to help diffuse tensions in the region. We agreed in principle to establish a EU, European Union maritime security operations. I mean, what Houthis are doing, however they are justifying it, it's illegal. This is violation of international law. There is no justification in attacking commercial traffic in the Red Sea. In November, Houthi rebels in Yemen hijacked a commercial ship and began launching drone, missile and speedboat attacks in the Red Sea and Gulf of Aden, a major passageway for marine trade, through which 12% of all global seaborne trade and more than 40% of Europe's trade with Asia and the Middle East passes. The campaign has seriously disrupted global shipping and raised fears that resulting price rises will add to already high inflation in Europe and elsewhere. The Houthis, who receive backing from Iran and are part of Tehran's so-called axis of resistance, claim to be targeting shipping connected with Israel and its Western allies and state that they are acting in solidarity with Palestinians in Gaza. In mid-January, the US and UK began launching their own military strikes aimed at deterring the Houthis, who continue their attacks seemingly undaunted. Some EU members, including Spain, Italy and France, have been apprehensive about joining the US operations. However, the EU has recently agreed on its own maritime security operation, APSIS. This mission will focus on intercepting attacks on commercial shipping, but is unlikely to undertake offensive operations. While many agree that the EU and its member states needed to act in light of the potentially dire economic consequences of prolonged instability in the Red Sea, some have warned that the military action risks drawing Europe into a widening conflict in the Middle East without doing anything to address the root causes of instability in the Red Sea and beyond. It is crucial that we have a joint European response to the Houthi attacks in the Red Sea, but at the same time, it is our duty to safeguard the progress that peace efforts have made in Yemen recently. We call on the member states to be meaningful and take immediate and concerted effort to address these attacks. To talk about this, we are pleased to welcome Camille Lons to the show. Camille is a visiting fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations, where she works on geoeconomics in the Gulf region and China-Gulf relations. Previously, she worked as a research associate at the International Institute for Strategic Studies, IISS, based in Bahrain and in Taiwan. She was also a Schumann Fellow at the European Parliament, focusing on Middle East policy. Camille, welcome to the show. Thank you. So, the Houthis said that it's the war in Gaza that is uh, at least one of their main motivations for their attacks on shipping. 
how do the Houthis say their actions are going to help with the situation in Gaza? So by, by attacking um, international shipping, especially in the Red Sea, which is a key artery of global uh, um, commercial trade, uh, the Houthis are trying to internationalize the conflict and put pressure uh, where it really hurts to the international community and put pressure to Israel, but also to the U.S. and to other big international players. Of course, um, I think we should take uh, the, the Houthis' justification here to face value. There is definitely a, a big component in their ideology of countering Israel. Uh, uh, the, the Palestinian cause is an important uh, cause to, to in the Houthi ideology. But there is also uh, some uh, other elements that fit into their own agenda, domestic agenda, in terms of reinforcing their popularity at home in Yemen, uh, but also uh, in the uh, in the entire region, uh, since the beginning of um, of the attacks in the Red Sea, they have uh, ma- managed to recruit more fighters. So there is also a wider agenda uh, to to take into consideration in, in why the Houthis are are doing this. What do you think is the economic impact of the Houthis' attacks in the Red Sea? I mean, that's the the big problem for the for the Europeans is that. They are depending economically on on Red Sea stability even more than uh, than the U.S. Uh, and so their their economic security, their energy security, also depends quite heavily on on freedom of navigation in in that area. About a quarter of of their good imports uh, pass through this uh, waterway. They also import uh, an increasing share of their energy mix from the Gulf uh, since uh, the beginning of the Ukraine crisis and the sanctions against uh, Russia. Uh, so their their energy uh, dependency on, on that choke point is also uh, increasing uh, since, uh, since a few years. And they're already observing uh, the impact this could have on the, on the EU uh, economy. For, for the moment, the the price of energy and the price of consumer goods have not been uh, uh, increasing too much in Europe. But uh, for sure, the EU commissioners for trade and, and for the economy have been saying that if the, the crisis lasts for too long, this would end up having uh, an impact on uh, on goods prices and, uh, and energy prices. We've seen also a beginning of impact on supply chains and, and industry with, for example, some uh, big uh, companies like Tesla, Volvo and Suzuki that announced that they would suspend uh, production at some of their European factories uh, because of supply chains uh, uh, issues linked to the Red Sea attacks. So this is the beginning of, of a concrete uh, impact this is having for, for, European, uh, for European states. But it's it's difficult to, to predict it because these supply chains are also quite plastic and adaptable to, to disruption. We've seen a few years ago when a cargo, the Ever Given, obstructed the, the Suez Canal, that this has disrupted some of the supply chains. But we saw also that these supply chains have been quite resilient at readapting to this crisis. Uh, but for sure, if it forces some of the, the ships to bypass the Babel Mandeb and, and Suez Canal and go around the, the, the long route uh, around the, the African continent. This is going to uh, increase delays. This is already uh, having a, an impact also on the on some of the freight rates, so increasing the cost of, of transport. I think that some, for some of the routes between uh, Asia and Europe, the, the 
transport cost has been more than doubling. So, so this is definitely something of, of great concerns to the Europeans. Uh, I think another security concern that is not discussed a lot for now is also the, the submarine internet cables. A, a lot of them are passing through the Red Sea. Uh, that represents about 70 to 30% of international internet traffic uh, and a lot of the European internet traffic. And so, of course, this is also a kind of element of vulnerability where if the Houthis or, or some other actors wanted to have a huge disrupting impact, that could be uh, also uh, something to watch closely. So as we said in the, in the introduction, the US and the UK have launched their own attacks and the EU has said that it is going to launch a mission. What would be the purpose of a EU mission in the Red Sea and, and what would that entail? So the reason why the European countries are trying to launch a separate mission from uh, the US one, you have several reasons, but it's interesting to look at how the EU is trying to push for a, a foreign policy line in the region that is distinct uh, from the US one. Um, so if we if we look at a bit at the beginning of the crisis, actually, because the Europeans' response has been a bit um, di- divided and, and unclear at the beginning. First, in the, in the war in Gaza, uh, the, the European countries have uh, appeared quite divided, uh, quite struggling to 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 find a, a position on that. Um, but also in the in the con- in the crisis in the Red Sea, and. At the beginning, it's the U.S. that has appeared as really taking the lead on uh, pushing for a multinational uh, operation, the uh, Prosperity Guardian mission. And initially, some European countries have uh, supported that mission. Uh, A few of them especially have been really actively and very vocally supporting it. The Netherlands, for example, Denmark as well. And some countries have supported the mission, but then backpedaled afterwards, like France, especially uh, Italy. They, They said that uh, they didn't want to uh, fully participate in the mission. The French said that they were going to coordinate with the U.S. mission while still keeping their ships under their own command. Uh, so there's been a bit uh, of um, unclarity at the very beginning. And in the meantime, the EU member states have been discussing internally how to maybe launch their own mission that would be separate from the U.S., and that would be better fit to uh, really push for the, the European uh, views on, on the region and the European uh, interests. Uh, because the big dilemma here for, for the Europeans is how to work or not work uh, with the US in that region. Because the US is and remains the key security provider in the region. But at the same time, they perceive US positions at some times potentially destabilizing and not aligning with uh, with the way the Europeans look at things. Uh, and so when we look at uh, the US and UK uh, launched strikes on Yemen in the past few weeks, uh, this is something that a lot of European countries see as potentially destabilizing and leading towards more escalation without necessarily deterring uh, the Houthis. And they also diverge from the US on, for example, the position on Israel. They don't necessarily align with this full support uh, that the US is is providing to Israel in the, in the conflict. They see that as uh, potentially eroding uh, Western uh, credibility in the rest of the region in their relationship with the other Arab states and, and even beyond the region. And same also on Iran. They don't uh, necessarily align with this very... Um, 
little bit what they perceive as a very aggressive maximalist uh, U.S. position on countering Iran. So on these different regional files, the Europeans are trying to find to strike kind of the right balance uh, in in the approach to the region. And and so this is a discussion that the Europeans have been having for quite some time, actually. The the Europeans are really trying to find uh, their voice and uh, and a position that looks less military-driven, more diplomatic, more defensive, uh, and and slightly different than the US on on these different uh, regional fires. So um, specifically, what... Was this, will this mission entail? What What is it expected to do in the Red Sea? So at the moment, the, the, the details of the mission are still being discussed. They have been in principle approved uh, last week by the different EU foreign ministers. And now it's going to be under discussion in the coming weeks. And it should be uh, finally launched, if, if they are successful at it, uh, on 19th of February during the, the EU Foreign Policy Council. And the, the, what's being discussed at the moment, there are still some details to, to be seen, but a, an important point is, first of all, this would be a, a defensive mission. This is something that they insist quite a lot on. So there is no preemptive strikes uh, on Yemeni soil the way the, the U.S. Uh, have done it. Uh, it's really mainly about uh, escorting some commercial ships, uh, European commercial ships through the, the Red Sea, preventing some attacks from, from happening, including by intercepting some of the missiles and drones that are being uh, sent towards the ships. A second point as well in terms of capabilities deployed, what is being discussed at the moment is having probably uh, three frigates that would be sent on a rotating basis. Some countries have already expressed their interest in sending frigates. The, the, the French already have a frigate in the area. The Italians have already two. Uh, so these might be mobilized for this. I think the Danes uh, and the Germans also have expressed their, their willingness to participate. Uh, but this is the initial idea, and it's still being under discussion. For example, uh, France and Italy are pushing for more uh, uh, more frigates to be sent, something up to like maybe around more like five frigates and and maybe an air cover by a fighter jet uh, at the same time. But so this, these are the details that are being discussed. Also, in terms of commands, who would be commanding and coordinating these uh, these troops? These are details that are that are not clear uh, yet for the moment. It's a defensive mission. The idea is to protect the shipping. So it's not really geared to, I mean, I suppose it's geared to making it not as advantageous to attack the shipping because it does no good. But in terms of actually contributing to peace and stability, how do you, as somebody who watches this region, assess the input of this potential mission? I think the one one objective of the mission, first of all, is um, it has also a symbolic dimension, which is signaling the EU's commitment to freedom of navigation in this area and and not letting the US, uh, you know, dealing with this alone, but showing the EU approach on that distinct EU approach on that. I think. Here, the idea also is that sometimes intervening only militarily uh, doesn't contribute to stability. And the approach of the Europeans is to 
on one side, uh, provide a response to the maritime security threats, but also, and I think uh, uh, on this, the, the most important thing is going to be a- addressing the root causes of instability rather than trying to to strike uh, the Houthis. And at the end of the day, we've seen with the with the U.S. strikes, they have not deterred the Houthis from attacking uh, until now. The, the attacks have continued. Uh, they have, on the contrary, uh, increased in, in popularity in, in the region. Uh, and and it, it increased also the risk of a, a kind of miscalculated escalation. And we see that with the the the, the killing of uh, three uh, uh, U.S. soldiers in Jordan recently, that uh, the longer these kind of strikes uh, happen, the bigger the risk of a miscalculation is, and and uh, and that could trigger wider regional escalation. This is something that everyone wants to avoid, and so the European position here is to avoid that, and on the contrary, try to find uh, address the root causes, which is. First of all, the, the the crisis in Gaza, and at least try to 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 solve that issue first and remove the pretext uh, that the Houthis are, are using to to conduct these uh, these attacks. Uh, this is going to be one thing. An- another track that the Europeans should and are thinking of of developing more is trying to maintain for as long as possible the Iran-Saudi uh, diplomatic rapprochement that has been has happening since last year and which until now has been uh, limiting some of the wider regional escalation. And so the Europeans have the diplomatic tools to engage with both countries on that and should continue to do so. And I think that there is also, but we can come back uh, to it later in the conversation, there will be also a broader challenge to address in Red Sea stability that goes beyond just the Houthi attacks, but which is it's been like more decade, more than a decade now that we've been observing root causes of instability in the entire Red Sea arena with intra-regional competition, external powers, a growing militarization of, of the area, and of course, conflicts and crises on both sides of the Red Sea that threaten to, to impact freedom of navigation. And here we have a, a structural instability issue in the Red Sea that will need also to be addressed by the Europeans. And that goes beyond just uh, addressing the the short-term kind of um, Houthi issue. What are the root causes of instability? When we talk about root causes, but what are they? So if if I expand a bit more on on that point I was making about uh, the Red Sea being a highly unstable region, and again, like here, I'm I'm dezooming a little bit from what is happening with the with the Houthis. Uh, but what we observe is an increase of militarization of the region, of uh, new actors from the region, but also from outside of the region that try to gain a foothold in the Red Sea. So, for example, we've seen increased uh, projection of influence by the Gulf states in the Horn of Africa, uh, sometimes uh, vying between each other uh, to for influence in that part of the world or with Turkey. Uh, we see also um, the arrival of, of China that gained a foothold in, in that part of the world, Russia that is also trying to, to get a, a military base in, um, in the Red Sea. And we see also an increasing interconnectivity between crisis and, and conflicts from both sides of the Red Sea, with, for example, the 
the smuggling of weapons between Yemen and some countries in the Horn of Africa, like Sudan, Somalia, with these crises feeding into each other. Um, we see, as I was saying, the, the projection of influence from the Gulf states having some destabilizing effects on some of the crises in the Horn of Africa as well. We've seen that in, in Sudan. We've seen that in Somalia as well. And so what we see is the emergence of a, a highly unstable region where dynamics are connected from both sides of the Red Sea. And, and here the Houthi attacks are, are showing how vulnerable that region is, but they're only the tip of the iceberg. And even if we address uh, the Houthi threat, another destabilizing threat could come from, from one of the other countries. Uh, the same way that we had uh, in the 2000s uh, piracy coming off the coast of, of Somalia that was linked to uh, instability issues in, in Somalia. And so there, are, there is a broader uh, issue here that, that needs to be also addressed in the long term if we want long-term stability in that part of the world. So often when I think of root causes, I think about things that are very local. But what I find really interesting about what you've just described is you're talking about part of the problem being all of these outside powers getting engaged and tying what's going on in the Red Sea to what's going on both in the region, you know, in the, in the Middle East, North Africa region, and more broadly. So, I mean, the is the EU getting... I mean, the EU is involved, right, because its shipping is at risk. Is the EU getting involved to do something about it, likely to make it better or make it worse? That's the question. For for now, the EUs are not a, a huge player here. Uh, they are trying to understand a bit better uh, how these uh, different dynamics connect to each other. At some point, they were trying to launch a kind of Red Sea platform that was convening all countries from around uh, the Red Sea to, to have a better understanding, a uh, more comprehensive understanding of, of that region and how the different actors, you know, connect to each other and, and, and see and look at the region. That didn't really work out. And, and this Red Sea platform has actually been launched by, by a regional country, by Saudi Arabia. Uh, so, uh, for the moment, the, the, the European countries, are, they still tend to look at the region separately, the Horn of Africa separate from, from the Middle East. And the, until now, the, the main uh, EU presence, military presence, was the mission Atalanta, uh, which was an anti-piracy mission. Some of the EU member states separately also have their own you know, uh, presence there. In Djibouti, the French have a big uh, uh, presence uh, in Djibouti. Uh, they some of them participate in anti-piracy missions or in in some of the missions conducted by the combined maritime forces, but the EU footprint is uh, for now quite limited uh, when it comes to really trying to understand that region and, and providing responses to 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 its uh, challenges. So to come back to the mission itself, of what you've described, I mean the EU is not a massive player in this region. The mission is is there to protect, for, for the EU to be able to protect its its sort of economic capital that goes through the, the Red Sea. But are there any risks for the EU in, in launching this mission? Does it risk, risk drawing them into that, into a wider regional conflict? If the mission isn't successful, does it risk undermining the EU's credibility in that region or, you know, in the, in the, in the Middle East, in the Red Sea or, or elsewhere? I don't think there is a, 
necessarily very high risk for the Europeans as long as the, the mission remains very defensive, as they said it would be. Um, the, I mean, if the, I mean, if the Houthis were to uh, damage one of the frigates significantly, I mean, would that provoke a, a, a wider response from the EU? I mean... The main risk would be by having ships in the area, but they already have, like some of the, the European countries already have frigates in the area, is of course, is if one frigate gets hit and damaged and if some soldiers get killed by Houthi attacks, that would push that country to respond more strongly. But apart from that, I think that the EU position and, and the European position in general has been very careful on that, on trying to avoid escalation at all costs. Some of them are already present in that part of the world, so there is only it's only a good thing to actually coordinate those efforts uh, a bit better uh, between the different uh, countries because the the main risk is to spread a little bit too thin the the capabilities in that part of the world because the the, the at the end of the day the European military capabilities are are quite limited, and so coordinating better between them can only be I think. Uh, 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 beneficial. Uh, but as long as this is not just a military response, but really also there is a broader diplomatic track happening also at the same time. And do we see evidence of that diplomatic track? Is the EU seriously engaging either in these broader Red Sea issues that you were talking about, or what the Houthis have said is at the heart of their campaign, which is the conflict in Gaza, the tension, the the tensions between Israel and Palestine. Yeah, I mean, the EU is is, is playing a role and is trying to, at, at the beginning of the crisis, they have been quite divided and, and struggling to really find their their voice. Uh, recently, uh, Joseph Borrell has been traveling to the region, engaging with the different players. Uh, so the Europeans are, are engaged on, on that track uh, for, for sure. And they have... I think the place where they can try to to position themselves is again by by having this alternative voice uh, from the US by showing that they co- don't completely align with with the US posture that they can try also to be more inclusive and, and more engaging with with some of the regional players because at the moment some of the regional players are a bit reluctant to completely engage with the US because they don't want to be seen as even towards their own population as embracing the the US support to Israel in that front i think that the eu can have and, and the europeans can have a kind of alternative uh, position but this is going to be quite difficult because at the beginning of the crisis because of this very uh, sometimes contradicting messaging that some uh, uh, senior uh, EU officials have been giving on the crisis with uh, Ursula von der Leyen traveling to Israel with a very pro-Israel position. This has, I think, hurt a little bit the, the, the image of the, of the Europeans in the region. And, and they tend to appear as, you know, as part of this broader Western bloc that is today facing a lot of contradictions in uh, in its positions uh, towards towards the region and towards uh, international uh, international law. So this is going to be a challenge for the for the Europeans, which is to really communicate better to some of the regional uh, players about their position and and about how they they are different from uh, from the U.S. on this. And could they do more to actually engage both regional powers and global actors, or is that a bridge too far for the European Union? 
So you mean, sorry, uh, so you mean engaging more with... I mean, it, you know, to prove that they're not the same as the U.S., they could conceivably try to work with the Chinese, right? Or is that just a far-fetched uh, concept that's uh, divorced from reality? Um, so that's a debate. Um, there has been for quite some time a debate in the EU of how to work better with the Chinese and not adopt the very hawkish uh, US uh, view on, on China and try to strike that right balance of third player of China is a, a systemic rival, but it's also a partner. And there there may be some areas where we can partner with the Chinese. And it's, it's true that maritime security is one of the areas where there is a discussion of maybe this is something we could work better with the Chinese. The reality is that it's been a bit more complicated that, that, than that. There has been a time uh, 10 years ago uh, when NATO was conducting joint uh, anti-piracy uh, exercises in that area, in the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden, uh, with China. But since then, I think that the growing rivalry between the US, China, and also the, the realization uh, from some of the of the Europeans that China was, even when it comes to, to maritime security, not necessarily willing to, to, to cooperate constructively that much and, and was also trying to advance its interest in the region. They have started coming back a little bit from this idea that they could that it was a good idea to cooperate with, with China on these issues. And especially when it comes to maritime security, at the end of the day, it's about sharing information about how you conduct, you know, uh, military warfare, how, how you how you operate. And so this is sharing quite sensitive uh, information with a country that is increasingly emerging as a key rival. So I think that there might be some opportunities to try to engage the Chinese to some extent and or at least um, maybe highlight the lack of, of response that China is providing to the current uh, crisis at the moment because uh, although China really economically relies a lot also on freedom of navigation, including uh, in the Red Sea, it has been very much absent right now uh, from uh, from pretty much everything happening. And so the US, for example, has been calling the Chinese uh, to try to pressure Iran, for example, a bit more to pressure the Houthis uh, against conducting attacks. Uh, so I think th the US here is not necessarily trying to coordinate or work more with the Chinese, but at least they're trying to highlight the contradictions in, in some of the Chinese discourse that they may play a greater role in the region. And at the end of the day, they, they end up not being that active when it comes to preserving uh, freedom of navigation here. So so they try to to actually highlight the lack of Chinese involvement in, in the region's security. So this has been really fascinating. Uh, I'm uh, saddened to say that we have run out of time, but uh, Camille, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Um, for more from Camille, you can follow her on Twitter. Uh, she's at Camille Long, Lons, sorry, remember to pronounce the S. Um, we also encourage you to check out her work on the ECFR website, including Troubled Waters, How Europeans Should Respond to Rising Red Sea Tensions, which was published in December. 
to read more of Crisis Group's work on uh, the Red Sea and uh, the Middle East and North Africa and the war between Israel and Gaza and all of the rest of it, uh, check out our website, www.crisisgroup.org. You can also follow Crisis Group and us uh, on social media. Crisis Group is at Crisis Group on X, uh, Twitter, whatever it's called, where Elissa is at Elissa Jobson. I have left uh, that um, ever-changing site, but I can be found as at Olya Olikur on Blue Sky and Mastodon. We'd like to thank our producer, Alex Figurski, and our coordinator, Heiko Schaub. But our biggest thanks, as always, go out to you, our listeners. If you have any thoughts or suggestions, do email us at podcasts at crisisgroup.org. You can also leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. And to make sure that you don't miss an episode, don't forget to subscribe. Don't forget to subscribe to War and Peace if you haven't already. You can find us on all the main podcast platforms. So with this episode, we are shifting to what we're going to call a monthly plus schedule for War and Peace. We will definitely release a new episode each month, and some months we will also release uh, special episodes in response to evolving events. So that's another good reason to subscribe so that uh, you're getting all of these as they show up. Um, But we will be back with a new episode very soon, and we hope you will join us for it. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.